Welcome to Long Story Short, sponsored by the Kirkpatrick Foundation. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. Keaton Ross covers democracy for Oklahoma Watch, and in his latest story, he examined how one lawmaker's proposal to split state and federal elections if Congress passes certain voting rights reforms. Keaton, who is the bill's author and what motivated him to file this legislation? It is Representative Denise Crosswhite Hader, a Republican from Piedmont. Uh, and she told me that her motivation was concerns uh, about what she called federal overreach on the state's election system. Uh, I, I believe some of the provisions of the, the voting rights proposals that uh, last year went through uh, the House of Rep- U.S. House of Representatives but didn't get through the Senate uh, included things like same-day voter registration and, and other things that Oklahoma doesn't do. Um, And so it was born out of concerns that that those federal provisions would come down to the state and uh, significantly change how state elections are run. Does there appear to be any kind of appetite uh, in the legislature for that kind of bill? It was heard in a House committee yesterday afternoon. Uh, We're talking on Tuesday, so that was Monday afternoon. And it passed on a party line vote out of there. It was one of the first bills election-related bills heard in the House this year, and a similar bill by Crosswhite Hader nearly crossed the finish line last year, um, cleared the House, but but stalled in a Senate committee in the final weeks of session last year. Uh, so it appears this, this bill um, has some momentum and uh, could very well become law uh, in the near future. If uh, Congress uh, passes voting rights legislation, would Crosswhite Haters' bill automatically uh, trigger some kind of separation, or would the the process be more complicated? The way the bill is written right now, it would start with the attorney general in agreement with the state election board secretary, uh, kind of triggering that separation uh, based on some kind of review of the federal law and how it would impact state elections, and then they would go to the legislature. Uh, for a sign-off on that plan, essentially. So it, it kind of starts with those those two leaders and then goes down to, to lawmakers should. Of course, there's a lot of steps to getting there, it passing on the federal level and whatnot, but that's how, how the bill works as it's currently written. So if uh, Oklahoma were to split elections, what kind of changes would voters notice? So there would likely be a general election every year. You would have your federal elections in even number years as it's currently done. And then you would have state elections in odd number years. Um, You'd likely have to register separately for the federal election and the state election. And of course, there would be different requirements for the state and the federal system. And the local elections would fall under the state provisions as well. Um, So it would be uh, different registration requirements, different lists. Um, of course, there would be a lot of uh, questions with that should it ever take effect. Wouldn't more elections cost more money? That's that's the understanding. Um, the latest estimates on how much a statewide election costs is 
around 1.3 to 1.4 million, according to the state election board secretary. Um, so you add that up with a general a runoff in a primary election, uh, you're looking at close to $5 million. Um, you know, there, there might be talk about trying to consolidate certain local elections, but as far as, you know, looking at this at a statewide level, um, the cost would, would add up pretty quickly. Now, Democrats and voting rights advocates have spoken out against the measure. What are their concerns? So their concerns are it would it would lead it could lead to a lot of confusion on voters. There would have to be some kind of uh, education, public outreach effort if this passed to try to get the message out that this is changing and you have to do this to be able to register to vote in both elections, that sort of thing. Um, there are also concerns just for uh the local election officials administering these elections, it, it could put more pressure on them um, and being having to navigate these two different systems. Of course, at this point, like I said earlier, it's still a lot of ifs. Um, but if, you know, something, the composition of Congress changes, this this bill in Oklahoma passed and that passes at the federal level, you know, this is something you could be looking at in a couple of years, hypothetically. So, um, certainly important to to look at and realize now that it's a possibility and and though the concerns of uh voters having being confused uh voter turnout going down in those odd number elections especially when uh the governor is not on the ballot and you're just voting on state representative those sorts of things have been raised as concerns with this plan as a possibility do any other states have a similar law Thus far, New Hampshire is the only state that has passed this kind of trigger law that would that could separate elections if if some of those federal voting rights reforms are passed. Uh, there are also pending bills in Texas and Missouri uh, that are similar to Oklahoma's right now, uh, but those are still going through the process. And what would be the next steps for Crosswhite Haters Bill? So, uh, as I mentioned, it passed committee on Monday afternoon. Uh, it's now eligible for a full House vote, and then it, if it passes the full House, it would go over to the Senate side, going through committee and having to clear the full Senate uh, in order to, to get across and get to the governor's desk. All right. Well, thanks, Keaton. You can read uh, Keaton's story about uh, cross-white haters' proposed legislation on our website, oklahomawatch.org. While you're there, you might also want to sign up for Keaton's weekly newsletter, Democracy Watch. Ashlyn Huffman covers criminal justice for Oklahoma Watch. In her latest story, she looked into the recent decision to uh, space out some scheduled executions in the state. Ashlyn, how did you come across the story? So the attorney general's office issued a press release in January talking about filing a motion to space out executions. Um, The Court of Criminal Appeals hadn't ruled on that decision at the time. So I got interested in why they would want to space out executions and the meaning behind it. And uh, you relied on a number of emails in your story. How did you get your hands on those? So I filed an open records request after the attorney generals issued the press release because in the release it said that DOC, the Department of Correction staff, they were facing trauma and having issues with that many executions close together. So I got curious on what kind of issues they were seeing 
with having that many executions together. So what what will that mean for the state? So essentially, the state will not be able to execute as many people as they had initially planned. The other important aspect is, since it was approved and executions will be spaced out now, um, there is less chance to have a botched execution. I know that was a big concern for Oklahoma, considering we just got out of a seven-year moratorium for having botched executions. So what was the uh, schedule like before uh, Attorney General Drummond uh, asked for more time? So in 2022, the schedule was we were going to execute 25 people over the course of 29 months. Um, That was essentially one person executed every month. So DOC staff, they were training three times a month for the execution. So they had no time to really recuperate between executions before they were already scheduled to train for the next one. And uh, that schedule was something that former Attorney General John O'Connor had put in place, right? The state appointee had uh, asked for that rapid schedule of executions uh, during the time he was in office, didn't he? Yes. um, The AG's office, DOC, um, Pardon and Parole Board, and the Court of Criminal Appeals, they all together discussed and came up with the best schedule. Um, I read a motion with Richard Glossop's case. He is the next one scheduled for execution. And DOC asked for having as many executions as possible so that the victim's families could get justice. Uh, So, Ashland, uh, obviously, if they're going to slow down the executions, um, that will, uh, we'll have the same number of people who are sentenced to death. They'll have to spread those out over a longer period of time, won't they? Correct. Yes. Um, the spacing out only refers to the next seven inmates who will now be executed from May of this year through June of 2024. So the remaining people will be pushed back again. All right. And what should people know, uh, regarding the, uh, future of executions in the state? So executions is a topic that I am covering for Oklahoma Watch, and I would be very interested in speaking to anyone who has news ideas on this, um, any former staff from DOC or therapists, anyone who has any knowledge about executions, um, you can call me, text me, or email me. All right. Well, thanks, Ashland. Uh, You can read Ashland's coverage of the new execution schedule on our website, oklahomawatch.org. Lionel Ramos and Ari Fife cover race and equity at Oklahoma Watch. They attended Black History Day at the Capitol this week to get a sense of the top issues on the minds of black Oklahomans. We have Lionel here today to talk about that event. Lionel, uh, this was promoted as the first Black History Day at the Capitol ever. Uh, Have there not been similar uh, celebrations in the past? There have been. Uh, they haven't been at that scale, and there hasn't been one that's been organized by the Black Legislative Caucus, which has seven legislators um, in that caucus. And, you know, it was put together by uh, Representative Jason Lowe, who's the chair of the of the Black Legislative Caucus. And it was in response to what he called an attack on the teaching of Black history. And so they wanted to make a, a statement with it. So what did the day entail? Uh, in a lot of ways, it was a typical capital event where there's um, a bunch of nonprofits kind of surrounding the, the second floor rotunda. Um, there was a stage. There were some um, some high school marching bands and some fraternities that put on some performances. There was a keynote speaker. 
his name was uh, Lieutenant General Stacy Hawkins from Tinker Air Force Base, and uh, civil rights leader Marilyn Luper Hildreth, the daughter of Clara Luper, was there. She she said some some words, um, and then Layla Foley Davis, which is the first black woman to be elected mayor in the United States. Uh, she was mayor of Taft, Oklahoma. Any anything else about the attendance uh, that was noteworthy? Uh, you know, there was a representative Lowe, when I called him uh, right after the event for a head count, he said that there was uh, over a thousand students, just public school students that were in attendance there with their teachers. Um, and then on top of that, there was everybody else that who they didn't count that showed up. So there was more than a thousand people there in attendance for the for the event. Um, and, you know, Governor Stitt was there and he said some words as well. And what did the governor have to say? You know, he he started his speech by saying that um, the politics can be left to be played in Washington, D.C., and that all Oklahomans in the end want the same thing. Um, They want the best education, you know, the best access to health care, the best roads and bridges is is, are the the three main things that he pointed out. Um, And then he jumped straight to playing up his his school voucher uh, agenda. And, (laughs) uh, you know, after the fact that when he got off the stage, I went around and, and talked to some of the the legislators that were there in the in the Black Legislative Caucus, and um, they had a different idea of what best was. Yeah, what kind of responses were there to uh, the governor's speech? You know, no one got up on the stage and directly refuted what he said. Uh, it was pretty diplomatic in that way. But in those conversations, I spoke to uh, Representative Marie Turner. Uh, Representative uh, Monroe Nichols, and and they were basically like, <laughs> you know, we the governor should be here because we respect the office, but uh, do we agree with his points? Do we agree with school vouchers? No. Are we going to stand by and just, you know, nod our heads while he signs bills that, that deny the teaching of our history? No. Uh, so they, it, it was very much a, they want him there as a part of the conversation, um, but the policies weren't necessarily in, this, in line. I would, was there anything about the event that uh, surprised you? Uh, yeah, there were two things. Um, when I spoke to to Representative Monroe Nichols, uh, he actually conceded that he agreed with the governor on one thing, uh, which is uh, wanting to reduce the grocery tax or eliminate the grocery tax. He said that that was something that, um, you know, as I was asking around what the most pressing issues were for black Oklahomans in the state, uh, Putting food on the table was one of those that he'd mentioned. And so uh, he saw that as a good avenue to make that easier for folks. Um, additionally, I spoke to a gentleman uh, named Paris Powell, uh, who works for an organization called TASC, Teaching and Saving uh, Kids. And he made an interesting point, which was that the one issue that wasn't brought up the whole event, it was from 9 to 1 p.m., uh, was gang violence. He's a former gang member. He was on death row um, for a crime that he didn't commit. He got exonerated a few years ago, and now he just devotes his life to teaching youth in Oklahoma City that violence is not the way. Uh, and he had some some ideas on, on what the legislature could do to fix that. Now, is this an event that uh, people can expect to see happen again next year? Yeah, so Representative Lowe said that, um, you know, it, it really is contingent on the chair of the uh, Black Legislative Caucus organizing the event every year. Um, but with the turnout that they saw this week, uh, it's definitely something that that they hope to to make a tradition for the Black Caucus. All right. Well, thanks, Lionel. You can read uh, Lionel's coverage of uh, Black History Day at the Capitol on our website, OklahomaWatch.org. 
You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Kirkpatrick Foundation, for which we're grateful. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.